Hey, my name is Connor Malley, and I'm the founder of SQR Squash Radio. And it turns out I'm a squashpreneur. What does that mean? Basically, an entrepreneur, but in the squash industry. I've founded Metro Squash in Chicago. I've been a teaching professional, tried out for Team USA, came nowhere close to making the team. But years later, I did find myself on the business side as director of Team USA. I've ran the US Open while working at US Squash for several years, done consulting for squash clubs and events, even court construction. The list goes on. These days, I'm still deeply involved in squash, especially with my new role with the PSA, the Pro Squash Tour, but trying to expand into other racket sports in lighting, court construction, and strategy. There's some exciting projects I'm working on, and I can't wait to share them. But in the meantime, we hope you're enjoying these squash-focused podcasts our team is helping to put out. We love doing them, and we hope you enjoy them too. What about this? This call is being recorded. Today's guest is Simon Park, who during his long professional career spent the majority of his time at the top ranks of the game, reaching a career high of world number three. These days, squash is still a huge part of his life, where he spends his time coaching as well as being a commentator on Squash TV. In this episode, we cover the ways he was literally thrown into the deep end on Squash TV and how he approaches the game from behind the mic. We dig into his mental toughness, which was one of the biggest assets to help him achieve his success. Simon takes us back to his battle with cancer, and we also touch on some of his other health journeys along the way. And with another baby on the way, we took some time to talk about his role as a father and what it's like as a family man. We go through our typical quickfire questions where you get to learn more about our guest. And it was a pleasure sitting down with Simon, who is no stranger behind the mic himself, and get his story on Squash Radio. Quick thank you to our sponsor, ProSport LED, who actually has some very interesting developments going on. They are strengthening their partnerships within the racket sports world. They are partnering up with Padel Plus to bring Padel courts into the United States and the UK. And just like their LED lights, these are premium quality courts at great prices. What's also unique about Padel Plus is their canopy roof structure that has all of the great qualities of getting an outdoor playing experience, but you have the dependability. You can play your match regardless of rain or snow. So if you know of anyone interested in lights or Padel courts, please go ahead and put us in touch. Reach out to us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, folks, welcome back to an episode of Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor Malley, and I'm delighted to be joined by another legend of the game, Simon Park, who got to world number three and is originally from England. But we're having this interview today in Houston, Texas, because we are here for the Houston Open, sponsored by Champion Fiberglass, and we're here to help support the event. And Simon, you're here in this role doing your squash commentary, which you've been doing a lot now over the past couple of years. When did you get your start on the commentary side? Morning, Connor. It was back in 2013, actually, the Q8 Open, and um, I think Lee Beach asked me to, to go and do that one and, and see what I thought, and it was... A baptism of fire actually the first day <laughs> uh, I was with Lee Drew it was me and Lee Drew for that tournament and there was a bigger there was a big arena there in Kuwait Kuwait City no one there for the first day 
no no food or anything like that. And we just, I think six matches went to five and there were no breaks. Oh, wow. And then the other two matches were really hard, hard fought four setters. And I think it was an 11 hour day with no breaks. And Adrian Davis was the MC. And um, he was just chucking us the odd Mars bar just to keep us going. He felt sorry for us. Yeah. yeah. And after that, <laughs> Lee, Lee was like, did you enjoy that? <laughs> first day, first day. I mean, I did enjoy it, but it was, I mean, it was, that was a hard day. That's yeah. still to this day, one of the hardest I've had. Well, I was going to ask, I mean, what do you think is harder being, uh, being playing on court or being off court doing the commentary? It depends on the day. You know, I've had some pretty easy days in, in commentary as well, where I've just done a couple of matches. They've been fantastic matches, but obviously it's two or three hours and you're talking about something you love and it's it's very easy. But for instance, the first day here was nine and a half hours. Yeah. But just because I'm a bit more used to it, you know, you get a bit more planning into it, into the food and the breaks, um, maybe someone helping out a little bit. And, you know, so I've been doing it nine years now. I'm kind of used to... Yeah, you've got used you've to it down. Yeah. Now, question, when you're not doing the commentary yourself, how often are you, you staying on tune with matches and, and, and following the tour yourself? I'm a fan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I watch it when I'm not commentating and it's, you know, it's a decent time if I'm not on court myself because I coach also. I watch it, yeah. 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 I watch uh, a lot of the matches. Yeah. Well, I know when you put that lens on of being a commentator and kind of yeah, being a fan yourself, but then also you're doing a lot of match analysis. You're kind of thinking, you're trying to absorb what the players are doing and you know, one thing that happens a lot in the sport and I, where the players distinguish themselves is really the mental aspect of this, right? And I sure. think we can appreciate and we see the physicality that goes on, but we can't see what's going on mentally. And I'd be curious, because you were known during your career for your mental toughness, right? So what do you see going on with the players today in terms of how they're um, approaching mental toughness and who you think is doing the best on the tour right now? That's interesting. I mean, obviously, somebody like Ali Faragana, he's world number one. But I look at him and and see that he's got a really good temperament. I think part of that comes from from your natural personality, and part of it you have to work on. So some have to work harder than others. Mm-hmm. And perhaps somebody like Mazen Hesham, who's done really well this week and is in the final, it has to work harder on his on his mental toughness and his concentration and his focus because he's just that kind of guy, isn't he? Like he's he's genius, but he can also just completely lose it as well. So I'm pleased for him, for instance, this week that he's got it together and he's able to to focus and concentrate. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether he's worked on that. It looks like he has. Yeah, it certainly um, he's pulling it together this week. And yeah, I wonder if that's also like the crowd really, you know, like he's he's in this to win it this week like it's been yeah yeah and he's been helped hasn't he by Jahan Zeb and mm-hmm. took calling it a second home and that kind of thing and I think he's been here a bit hasn't he doing exhibitions yeah. and so that that can de- that can definitely help as well but so you see that certain players kind of either have that already kind of a disposition where they're they already have that mental toughness now for you where would you fall in that was that something that came naturally to you or did you put a lot of hard work in that we didn't see I think I was fairly natural in terms of mental toughness, and from a young age as well, I had it you know, drilled into me. You never, you never give in. And my role models were people like Jonah Barrington and Jeff Hunt. You know, I read obviously well before internet days and squash TV. So I was either watching it live. Well, initially I was reading books, reading Jonah's book, and and it just somehow got instilled into me that 
you never give up, you train hard and all the rest of it. And I think I think I kind of have a bit of a personality like that as well, where I'm very stubborn, you know, don't like to lose. So it worked quite well. And my dad was like that too, he coached me first initially and, and took me around loads of tournaments. So I, did, I worked on it a bit more when I was older as a pro, when England squash started getting lottery money and we started getting... But like sport. around what age was that for you? Um, sort of mid-20s. Mid-20s. Yeah. Yeah, when we got the lottery money. So sports psychologists were starting to come into England squash and give us give us help. And um, there was a woman there called Kirsten, Kirsten Barnes. She was a, actually a gold medal, Olympic gold medal rower. So she obviously knew all about winning, and but also the, the, the mental side. She was very tough. And even if you are good mentally, you can always work on it. Well, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like you were fortunate to have that natural disposition that you're saying, like, uh, like an Ali Farag had, uh, the environment that both you were around with, with your father and also what you were kind of absorbing off of these books helped lay the groundwork. But then when you were trying to improve, what was some of like the rubber hitting road of like, this is what I did. This was my focus point to try and, you know, improve my mental toughness. What was, what was that for you? It was, I mean, you know what squash is like. It's it's a game that's pretty difficult to referee. And obviously you get arguments on, on the court with, with, with referees. So often it's kind of accepting decisions and just sort of qualifying it in your head to the point where it's water off a duck's back. You know, you, you've just got to be in your own world and your own zone and... and there's going to be decisions going against you. There could be four or five a game. So I would kind of think, right, I'm going into this match. I'm going to say virtually nothing to the referee. It's it's not going to go my way quite a lot because that's the nature of squash. So just accept it. And and that's when I was in my best zone, I think. So it, it sounds like a little bit of envisioning what the match will be like and yeah. imagining the worst conditions. And then you're kind of predicting or, or, or wishing the, the response that you're going to want in those conditions. Yeah, that... you're predicting the worst in terms yeah. of like, not saying that they're bad referees, but just you, you might, you know what it's like, you don't, you know, it's you not see it through rose-colored yeah. spectacles, obviously, right. when you're on there as well. And it's not, there's a lot not going to go your way, especially against certain opponents as well, who were particularly difficult, and not just necessarily their standard, but maybe in the way that they played. So you have to envision that as well and expect the worst. And then if you expect the worst in terms of that, then things, you know, you can, you can cope with it in your mind. Was there anything that you did to help refocus you when you're on court? So the call, the bad call just happened. You knew like, okay, I planned for this happening, but what did you tell yourself in that moment? Sometimes just simple count to 10. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Just, um, deep breaths, maybe not look at the at the referee just kind of look away go to the position that you're supposed to be in maybe this the, the left service box or return area and just just try and put it behind you now going back but this is where physicality meets the mental toughness you were you were known to play some matches that uh went very long like some long i think even i heard an hour and 50 minutes battle I had a two, my longest ever match was two hours and 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but that was obviously back in the days of 15, 15 with a rally. Okay. And I did play some matches, obviously nine, nine English scoring, some for, right. for England and stuff. Certain, certain tournaments, non PSA were nine English. Yeah. 
But I actually played the father of Shah Jahan Khan here, Zarek, oh, yeah. Zarek, quite a few times. So that was that two hours ten was the quarterfinals of the British Open against him. Oh my gosh! At Wembley, and and so when that's going on, I mean that really is rubbing up of there's the physical aspect which you can do a lot of training off court and you you are fortunate enough to have a body that can really handle that and you you put yourself through grueling training training but which was harder in those moments like the mental aspect or the physical aspect when you're getting into hour two um depends how fit i was at the time (laughs) with that zarak match um i remember jonah barrington talking to me afterwards and just saying that i was ill ill prepared and i was a bit younger then so i was I think I was around 19 or 20 and I could be known to be a bit up and down with my physical training at that time. Definitely sorted it out when I was older, sort of 23, 24 upwards. But when you're when you're fit and you you know you're okay and everything's everything's good, it's it's the mental side. And especially you know I played my best matches and my my peak time was against people like Jonathan Power and and Peter Nickel. Yeah. And they were mental battles, right. big time, right. but in in different ways. As, as you know, how different they were. Both very tough, but you know, with Pete, it would it would be a mental and physical battle. But he was just so stubborn, like me, and and very very tight with his points. If he won a point, it was because he'd really worked worked hard right. for it. Right. Whereas with Power, you know, there, there could be a bit of genius and three or four points just. You, you just you, you don't know what you can do. Yeah, you don't know what yeah. you're gonna get, and it's he's there's a bit of genius there, and then but that also he could hit a couple of tens and, and let you in. So it's probably a bit like playing Mazen, you know, it's uh, you know quite random. Yeah, you you've played at this interesting crossover era of the legends of the cons, kind of towards the later end of their career, uh, the Peter Nichols, Jonathan Powers, you talked about who, and it doesn't have to be them, but you straddled this really interesting period of squash. Who were the top three players that every time you go on court, you're like, I just don't want to play them. <laughs> like, who, who kind of like hit the top of the roster that wasn't maybe as obvious, right? Like, so it could be those those legends in the game, but like, was there anyone else that you're like, oh, this is just going to be a brutal match? Um, well, Brett Martin, I found very difficult to play against. I mean, he, I only beat him once. Um, he was a little bit older, obviously, and he was hitting his peak earlier than me. But he was just so so deceptive, and that time that I did beat him, it was it was in five, obviously, <laughs> and it was in um, it was in Malaysia and the semi-finals, I think, of the Malaysian Open. And he just he just had me on a string like he does most people. But I I managed to win, and afterwards he said his his forearm was getting tired because he was so busy flicking <laughs> around the court. And I I actually sat down and. Um, I remember I couldn't get my breath back for about half an hour afterwards. It was just brutal, but I managed to get the win. Pete Marshall was, was very good, still a very good friend of mine. We've we come up through juniors together, and it would just be brutal, a bit like playing Pete Nickel, you know. It would be right to the wire, usually five five sets, especially you know when we were both fit because he had his health problems yeah. as well. But I would I would enjoy them because they were just such a such a great challenge and when we trained together at the park forget PSA which is training matches they'd go to five Mm. they'd be two hours oh my god it's three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon and there'd be people coming in from work and you know getting a sandwich and a beer and coming and watching our training matches it was it was it was good good fun but brutal so who were some of the other just 
so John Shere Khan, like what was that like playing against him? Tough. Um, same thing. I only managed to beat him once, but that's more than a more than a, a few people. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But he, yeah, I played him in a couple of finals, and he, he just had a sixth sense. I, I've been talking about this a little bit with Ali Farag, and you know, and a few people compare compare the two. Similar build. Mm. There's a few little things technically that are, that are different, obviously, different generation. But the way that uh, Farag reads the game is a little bit like Jansha. He, he seems to have that that sixth sense as well. You know, that that flick that you have at the front that beats 99.9% of the the circuit. But that that one player that for me it was Jansha would just be standing there waiting as if he'd read your mind and just mm. follow it down the wall. Very frustrating. Yeah. The other thing, similarity was he, you wouldn't feel like he was, it wouldn't look like he was putting pressure on you, but it was very subtle. I think Ali, Ali does the same. You know? Yeah. It's, it's not Everything's just power. that little bit faster. Right? Yeah. But, he's just stepping up. and So it's obvious with Asala, isn't there, what's happening? Right. Because he's just brutalizes the, the ball and the, the front wall yeah. and his opponents. Yeah. Um, and you can see it happening right there. But with Farag, it's, um, it's definitely more subtle, which is what it was like with um, with Jansha. Because with because obviously Jahanga again was was more was more power, and it was a bit more obvious. He was accurate as well, but it was a bit more obvious what was happening on on the court. Yeah, but Jansha just had so much. I mean, he was still, I believe, one of the best the best movers ever. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So, how are your squash courts looking these days? Are the ball marks starting to add up? Do your courts need some attention and care? Well, in the US, there's a new solution coming your way. Pro Sport Court can be your one-stop shop for all your court care needs, from standard cleaning, painting, floor sanding, all the way up to lighting upgrades. Pro Sport Court can have your courts looking like new. Reach out to squashradio at gmail.com to learn more. Now back to our show. So, Laying over your career has been a journey of health, and you've had a lot of battles that uh, some are well-known and, and, and you've shared and others not as well-known. But I wonder, was your the mental toughness that you developed in squash, did that help you through those health journeys? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, um, yeah back in 95, I think it was, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And um, early '96 had a had surgery, and then and then I had to go through chemotherapy, and yeah, it was a very it was a very tough time at 23 years of age to go through that. And considering just before that as well, I was I really felt like I was hitting top form. I, I think I was I think I was five or six in the world or something like that, and I was I was pretty much beating everyone most of the time apart from Jancha. Uh, and it was just a matter of time before I was just getting up to two, I felt. Uh, but then that that hit me and it, you know, obviously took me out for pretty pretty much of 96, most of 96. But yeah, I, th- I think the mental toughness from sport definitely helped. And then and then um, post that, I became, became even tougher, I think. I was going to ask, what, what was it that you found yourself when you were facing this diagnosis and, and you, you know, you're kind of hearing about the journey that's going to be laying out to you. What was it that you pulled from squash to help you through that? Like, was there anything 
that you, a routine that you did or saying that you had or just what you looked for for inspiration? Was there anything that jumps to mind? It's a long time ago now. Uh, I can't believe it's, it's over 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm trying to put myself back in that that person's head, I think, I don't think I worry too much about things out of my control. And that's what I do on the squash court. And that's what I do in life as well. If my girlfriend thinks that, uh, you know, I don't worry enough, but it's just the way I am. I think so that, that, that sort of helps with my you know personality a little bit. And, um, the you know, people around me were, were getting worried, obviously at the time, you know, my family and stuff, at, you know, wanting, all of the information at once, which, you, as you'll know, with the medical profession, you don't always get it yeah. what you want. But l- luckily, quite quickly, it seemed that you know I wasn't I wasn't going to die, thankfully. But it could affect my career. Early on, I thought it could affect my career um, because with chemotherapy, you can get things like lung fibrosis and and things, which thankfully I didn't. But that can make you uh, a lot less fit. Which isn't ideal for squash, right? Right. Yeah. Takes- <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, just things you can't you can't control. You don't you don't worry about. So it's just that sort of sera sera kind of attitude, really. And you said that going through that, you were able to port some of the lessons or the experiences that you went through and turn that into the positive for your career. What, what was there anything specifically that you remember that yes that helped translate during the health journey into the career? I think once I came back, which by the way was a lot quicker than I thought I would. Mm. Like, uh, so I had the had the surgery in January '96, the chemo, sort of Feb, I think March '96, and then by May '96, I was playing the pyramids in that you know in the Alaram um, event. Yeah, and I, I actually won. I had a bald head, and I won my first two matches. Oh wow! Um, I think it was Karim Mal Mr. Cowie, if you remember him. And then Derek Ryan, who's now PSA physio. Yeah, yeah. And then I came up against uh, my old foe, Janshia, which it kind of didn't matter really because, you know, <laughs> right. I was just so happy to be there yeah. after after what I'd been through. And then luckily, so I missed the British Open and that was it. I didn't really sort of miss too much because there was the Alaram and then there was the summer, the summer's training. So I could sort of like just get, just gradually get myself ready for the new season. And by the new season, I was... I was pretty good again, to be fair. And um, I think just not taking things for granted, that's in life, that's how I felt. I was just, I remember being really excited to get back on on the circuit and I was really, really enjoying it. And because sometimes you can, you know, I'd already been playing a long time since I was like eight years old. Right. And a lot as well. You can take things for granted and sort of lose your enjoyment a little bit. So when I came back, I was, I was flying and I was really really enjoying the game and when you when you get that diagnosis what, what was your ranking around then i think i think i was around five five yeah i was definitely top eight yeah but i hadn't quite got to the the heights later on which is more late 90s you know when i got to three right uh, that was post post cancer but when i got it the likes of jancho was still around he hadn't retired yet and i think people like pete nickel rod isles was still above me. I think Barada was around, you know, those kind of guys. Power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think Power was just starting to to get going. He was a little later than Nickel, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
And during this COVID time, this past couple of years, it sounds like you've also had more health journeys to kind of to tackle. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that experience and what happened. Well, last year I was commentating on the uh, Canary Wharf tournament with Jerry Barrington, and I was starting to feel a few a few stomach pains, and um, it it didn't seem like it was a food thing or whatever. It just just seemed a bit strange. I started struggling in the in the stomach area, and to cut a long story short. It, it went over like two or three days, so it didn't seem to make sense. And the quarterfinal stage, Joey was like, I, th- I think you're going to need to see someone. He said, speak to Tim, Tim Garner, because people in the crowd, there's going to be all sorts of right. a variety of people. And it turns out there was a couple of medical medical people there available, and they checked me out, and they were straight away appendicitis. Mm. Let's get it done. Straight to Barnet Hospital. The next day, I was having my append- appendix out. And COVID was just just happening. The pandemic was just starting. So everyone was really paranoid and scared in the hospital. Sure, um, sure. I was going undergoing surgery when it was just happening. So when I was recovering, I was feeling terrible and thinking, oh, maybe I've got COVID and stuff. And it was pretty awful. I had to stay there three or four nights. Did, you, did they catch it before it burst or had it burst? They caught it before it burst, yeah. Okay. But it was getting a bit gnarly, they said. Really? Yeah, yeah. So it was lucky that I went in. Wow. Anyway, fast forward a few weeks, I get a call from the surgeon saying it all went well and everything. But the, the bad news is that a part of the appendix is um, about a centimetre of a, a tumour attached to it, oh, wow. which we think is benign. But we're going to have to tell you, because I live in Leeds, we're going to send it out to your... Your doctors in Leeds, and they'll they'll take it take it from here. I was like, oh great, it's going. You know, it took me back to '96. So I basically needed another operation. Uh, they weren't. They they tested me out. They did all sorts of scans and stuff like that. I couldn't find anything. But but what happens is when you when you have something like that, bits can break off. Very small parts of it can break mm. off, and they didn't know that that hadn't happened. Okay. Yeah. So. It's all around the colon area as well, which is quite scary for them. And they need to... So, so basically, I had a third of my colon removed. In oh, my gosh. Last was it, and was that preventative or is that because... Yeah, more preventative, yeah. Yeah. Because, like I say... With so scans, two surgeries. Two surgeries last year during yeah. COVID. Oh, my gosh. Um, March and June. Yeah. Thanks. I, hopefully, it's all over now. <laughs> this, this past May... Uh, I had my appendix out. Oh, you did? Yeah. It was, right. It was, we caught it before it burst, but it was one of those things where it didn't feel that bad. And so it's like, you kind of like, do I really need to go get it checked out? And Yeah, same. I, and I kind of felt, you know what, if I'm wrong, no big sweat. And it was just like, I've wasted a, a, an afternoon or yeah. going to ER and it's frustrating. Yeah. But if, I, <laughs> if I'm right and it is appendicitis, then this could get... Uh, if it bursts, it's, yeah. it's yeah. pretty hard for a burst, but it was, yeah. it was definitely... Yeah, uh, it is a weird feeling, isn't it? It's like you're not really that ill, but it's not right. Yeah. It's yeah. Something, something in there needs sewing out. But by the time I get to the, the ER, I started going downhill pretty fast, like going into the shock. And I, oh, right. I, I, okay. I, pa- I passed out in the... Um, the, the waiting room, I, I hit my head on the wall, oh, which God. then I thought I was like, oh my gosh, now do, do I have a concussion or memory issues? And oh, uh, so it was you just got it in time then? Yeah, I got it just in time. Yeah, wow. before it bursting. So, but yeah, I feel you. It's uh, <laughs> fortunately, 
I didn't have the the surgery after like you did. Yeah, gosh, yeah. what a that was that kept me in obviously for for a few days as well, and I was um, yeah, took took me a while to to get back training again because you know I like to I like just I like to keep fit. You know, I'm not yeah. I'm not playing Yorkshire League anymore or anything like that. I was playing a bit of squash up to just before the the pandemic, but I pretty much retired from. Well, never say never, but play, definitely playing Yorkshire League anyway. Yeah, uh, squash. Mm-hmm. Um, playing playing um, a bit more racquetball and stuff like that just for fun. UK racquetball. Right, 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 right. Squash yeah. fifty seven. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. just because it's just easier on my body, you know. And, and then aside from that, just gym work and walking the dog. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we look back on your career. I wonder if there's, um, and you've, you've had a long career, uh, one of the best in history. Is there any picture or memento you have around the house that you keep with you that kind of reminds you of a great moment on your career where you're like, you know, because a lot of it lives in our head, but when we see that kind of, whether it's a medal or even a racket, maybe you hold on to a racket that broke, but it meant something to you, or there's a p- picture. What, what stands out when I ask you that question? When you, um, when you said that, I was thinking, um, because I'm not one of those for having many squash pitches around. I was thinking, do I have one? And they're usually just in the loft or the shed. Yeah. <laughs> but there is one. There is one, just a small one by um, a few other family pitches and stuff like that in, in our lounge, mm-hmm. which is a picture of me against Mark Challoner in the final of the British Championships, 98. And, and I, which I won. And that was just, that was a great memory. So every time you just glance at that, it takes me back. Uh, but I don't really have any other any other pictures at all around the house what about on the internet on the internet yeah uh well there's there's um well there's a few on there of course yeah no uh but i don't really know i don't really look at them that much yeah um but it would be nice i have still got the us open um trophy which isn't really a trophy it's like a glass glass bowl yeah so when i see that i think that's somewhere somewhere on on the landing that that you know it's nice to to remember that well you've also had through your success kind of unique opportunities and or experiences that you know not like famous athletes do get what stands out as kind of a unique moment for you during your playing experience a unique moment that's a good question well i played the i played the first commonwealth games that that involved squash and that was in '98 in in Kuala Lumpur, and unfortunately, I I didn't manage to to, to medal in the individuals, which I did have a yeah, chance. I think I was seeded. I didn't make it through. Lost to David Evans in that, which was um, yeah, no disgrace, but disappointing. Right. Um, but I I ended up being in the the mixed doubles. I wasn't in the men's doubles. I was in the mixed doubles with Suzanne Horner, also from Yorkshire, and we were we were rubbish to start with like we, we we were struggling in the group situations i don't think we practiced enough and it was all quite new wasn't it back, back then mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. you know uk doubles or european commonwealth doubles and we just improved and improved and improved to the point we did actually get out of the group and got to the semi-finals beat south africa and then came up against australia in the final which was michelle martin craig Rowland. Unfortunately, they were too. They were too good. I mean, two fantastic players. But just getting getting the silver medal, going to like a, a multi sports yeah. sort of event was pretty special. 
I was a bit gutted that I didn't make it to Manchester. I had a, another injury and I didn't kind of quite recover in time for, for Manchester. And it was also just at that time that people like, well, Pete Nicholas had gone from Scotland to England, mm-hmm. which was a problem because he was world number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it pushed me down. Lee Beecher was getting really good. James Willstrop, all of these people. So I just just missed that, which was a bit of a, a disappointment. I'm very mindful that players themselves who, who are responsible for all the hard work and, and really executing on court, but it's the support team around them that really helps enable making those dreams possible. Who, who were some of your role models that really impacted you in your development? Well, my dad got me started playing squash at Pontefract Squash Club back in the back in the day. I think it was built in the late 70s. 77 I think which was the you know the boom of squash especially in in the UK and at that club there was I think there was initially there was 14 courts I think or 12 or 14 courts and I remember we were practicing he was so keen particularly and that obviously gave me the enthusiasm the club was still being built and we were on one of the courts there were builders still in there and we were on court four in a way and he just gave me a lot of time Uh, he'd come from he was quite new to the sport himself as well. He'd been a, a Leicestershire County junior champion, I think, at tennis. Mm. And he played good level local kind of football, soccer. And once he found squash, he just gave the, just knocked the other two on the head and it was all about squash. And luckily he had quite a flexible job. He was a salesman for Patrick, who were a sports firm. So he could, you know, get all the sales done and finish early, pick me up from school and and get me get me training we trained before school actually like seven o'clock seven thirty drop me off he'd go to work and then he'd, he'd be there waiting with my squash bag at three o'clock three thirty straight back to the squash club so those those first few years i was getting at least two or three hours a day every every day uh, and was he coaching you or yeah. was he just kind of setting up the structure like what how involved yeah. He was coaching me, um, but he was making it up as he was going along, or he was learning as he was going along. And I, I think we were lucky because because he was involved with Patrick, he spon- he was quite a bit responsible, I think, for for sponsoring Jahangir Khan. So we started meeting people like that, and um, people from other sports like Kevin Keegan. I don't know if you know him from soccer; he's a legend of, of football, but also Jeff Hunt. We were, we were meet, he was coming to stay at our house and you know, so we're starting to meet all these kind of, kinds of people. So my dad was just, he never did any courses or anything, but mm. just learning, learning as he went and it was passing it down to me and I was obviously in awe of these people. So I was just like a sponge, I was just learning very, very fast. But ultimately he wasn't a squash coach. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to send me to somebody who, who was, in his words, a proper squash coach. And that was Malcolm Wolstrop. Mm. And he was at um, he was at Walton Hall, not Pontefract then. He was at another place, sort of uh, Wakefield, which is sort of 15, 20 minutes down the road. And he had loads of quality players. And so my dad used to take me there three times a week. And I got him, I, I was there for three years before Malcolm moved away. But yeah, he, so my dad initially, then Malcolm Wolstrop. Malcolm moved away, quite a long way away to Norfolk, which is like three or four hours away, which was difficult for me. But then I started working with David Pearson quite a lot. 
and through the, through this time, so it's getting better and better. So I was starting to be involved in England squads, junior squads, and stuff. Where Jonah Barrington was one of my, and still is a big idol of mine. So I was just really lucky to to have all these great people. Yeah, sort of molding. Well, you've worked with the best in the game. Yeah, certainly at the right times. And yeah, what do you think if I asked them? What was, if you had to pick one superpower, and I, I kind of pulled all of them, what do you think they would kind of, all kind of agree would be your superpower on court? Pro- probably, probably just determination. You know, I think, you know, a lot of people refer to me as a kind of a, a great retriever and all that kind of thing, which is kind of, kind of a bit reductive, but I guess it's just what people remember, isn't it? Because I was certainly no, no Rami Ashur in that respect, but I wasn't, I didn't think of myself as a hacker either <laughs> but yeah I think I think my determination was a big factor was a huge factor and from from a young a young age as well that's you know I just wouldn't let let any points go I want to spend some time talking about your family and you've, you've touched on your dad and, and how important role he was but now you're also a dad yourself yeah right and you have one daughter and uh, another baby on the way on the way yeah on we don't know way. what it is yet yeah but very is, soon yeah. yeah talk a little about your family uh, experience yeah it's it's um it's great i've got a seven-year-old called frankie my little girl and um yeah she she lives with her mum most of the time but we we myself and Lindsay, my my girlfriend we have a pretty much every weekend and uh it's all fun and games i've got her on the squash court a few times and she she enjoys it, but she's only seven, so you know we're just having a bit of fun. She's looking forward to a new little sister or, or brother, so that'll be that'll be cool. I think she'll be she'll be really really good uh, older older sister. Yeah, yeah. I think seven years is some people think it's quite long, but I think it'd be quite cool actually. She'll be able to help as well. I think. Yeah, <laughs> nappy changing and stuff. Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> it's. Um, the question I'm about to ask is, I've been sort of fascinated by this, but I was listening to this podcast recently that says, you know, in the, in the 1960s or 1970s, parenting has really taken on a new role. Like I think, and there's a couple of different reasons why culturally or the time in our life that we're in where, um, you know, really back in the day, just families were just raised themselves. A lot of it's survival or just you have so many uh, children that they kind of raise, it's a system that raised itself. But now parenting is its own thing like it's almost you have to be focused on it and an activity and i'm curious what kind of dad do you try and be for your kids yeah that's the thing because i mean dads are a lot more present now aren't they and work is a lot more flexible so people have more time to be with their kids and obviously i'd you know i i regret the fact that i can't spend more time with frankie but that's just that's the way the way it's gone so we make the most out of the the time that we've got but i just try and Try and be kind. Try and uh, try and listen, and just try and teach her the, the right things to do. Try and bring her up, you know, be be polite and all the rest of it, and and just just enjoy everything you do. And yeah, try, we, digital stuff. She's she. I mean, she loves the iPad. We've got to try. And, <laughs> it's always trying to wrestle the. It's I, a it's a lot of negotiating. Yeah, 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 a lot of negotiating. That's, yeah. that's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's what it's that's what it's about. Yeah. Um, Do you have the secret sauce? Because I, I think a lot of people would be curious to know um, if you've cracked the code. I don't think I have. No, I, she, she doesn't listen to me that much. So yeah, yeah. I try, but I think 
if we can keep we try we try to keep her active like with the squash you know going for, we've, we've got a dog so going for walks and going to parks and and just and it, obviously the weather isn't great in England a lot of the time so when we're at home for a brief time you know she can have she can have the ipad but we just try and keep her occupied with physical stuff as much as possible yeah outside of that on on the days where it's probably harder to um you know because oftentimes or there are times when i'm sure you could just say and she'll she'll follow what you say but like what have you found to like be most helpful for you when you're trying to negotiate that that you know how to make that work whether to, whether it's get outside and go do something else what sweets Bribery. <laughs> just Can, straight up candy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Just motivation. Just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, if you, if you do this now, then you'll get these later. Yeah. And then she listens. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to turn to some standard questions that we kind of ask each guest, but I want, but I also want to make sure, cause we, we touched on a lot of things. There's anything going back to any of the questions I've asked that you kind of might want to add a little bit more color to or well I'd just like to mention my mum as well because um although she didn't come to a lot of the tournaments uh when I was a junior she she's certainly uh, made up for it since because she well she she came to the world juniors that I won in 1990 in Germany in when it was West Germany then a whole bus of of people from from Yorkshire mainly Pontefract including Malcolm Wolfstrop and Leslie Wilstrop, it's James's, James's and David Campion's mum, uh, and my mum, and they, they, they all came and she saw that, which was great. And since then, she's been a big fan of my, my commentary and stuff. Oh, really? And she's, yeah, she mainly watches it. So she's, my dad doesn't actually watch it much anymore, uh, but my mum, my mum does whenever she gets the chance. So like the last 10 or 15 years, she's probably watched more squash than him. So <laughs> she's kind of catching up. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Well, one of the, the standard questions I kind of start off easy is, um, do you have a favorite movie or documentary? It's a good one. There's, there's so many. I mean, I am a big, I am a big movie fan. Um, I like a lot of the, the more kind of independent movies, but I don't know. Pulp, Pulp Fiction springs to mind. Mm, that's a great one. Yeah. Are you, are you a Tarantino fan? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, I'm watching a lot of a lot of TV series at the moment. Oh, that's the the big thing. Nar- yeah, that counts. Right. Narcos and stuff like oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah. I love all, love all that stuff and Mayans MC. But yeah, I, I went through. I like to watch some of the older movies as well. Like every Christmas we watch It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, and just you know, Lynn's hadn't seen that before she um, before we we met, but now it's become a, a thing for her as well because she didn't really watch too many of the. The really old films, you know, the 40s, black and white stuff. I went through a Marlon Brando phase a few a few years ago. I pretty much watched everything that... You have that, a favourite of his? Godfather's probably the obvious one, but I do like On the Waterfront, mm. of the of the earlier ones. That was... That was that I really like that one. And would you say you're a movie buff, or are you just a, you just it's no. a good way to... No, I'm not a movie buff, yeah. definitely not. But I have seen a lot of films, a yeah. lot. I'd, I'd be quite interested to know how many I've seen, but I think being a squash player, you know, you, you just a lot of time on the road, a lot, a lot of time. Of, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just talking to Chris Gordon actually, who I'm commentating with this week, and we remember that those times when you got all the pre-internet, pre-streaming, pre-Netflix, where you got all those cheap. You go to Hong Kong or Malaysia, and you go to the markets, get, get the, the cheap DVDs. DVDs. Yeah. So I, I think I've watched a lot of films 
in that time, a really bad quality. <laughs> Your two dollar DVD, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know Ethan yeah. Hawke and all those actors around that time. They, I just saw them really blurry. <laughs> it was like, oh, he, yeah. he does look pretty good looking. But you were happy because it was cheap, right? And it was in the cinema, you know. But you 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 got it, and you could watch it on the road. Yeah. Are you familiar with TED Talks? I've heard of that, but yeah. I'm not exactly sure what it is. So they're about 12 to 15 minute long speeches and they're uh, experts in their fields or people who've had experience and they go and they share with the rest of the world. So yeah. imagine what I, what I want to get you to uh, think about is you're going to be giving a TED talk, but it can't be anything that you're known for. So meaning squash is off the table because you are well documented within that realm. Right. So what would be... Uh, and it could be a concept that you're talking about or another scenario, something that you now have the opportunity to go out and experience and learn, but then you would share that with the rest of the world. So what would be your TED Talk? How to do a festival. Yeah. <laughs> How to do a, not run it, but do a music festival, be it a, be it one and like, um, like Glastonbury, you know, Glastonbury. I, yeah. I've heard of it. Yeah. 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 It's the, well, in my view, it's the biggest and best in the world. I mean, they've had the stones play there. Paul McCartney, Beyonce, Jay-Z, all the best, the biggest artists ever running from, I think it was like the early 70s. But I'm a big music fan. And these things are absolutely fantastic to go to, but they're not they're not always that easy, you know, because mm-hmm. you're in like a, a village or a small city for six or seven days, no showers, all that sort of stuff. So I think I've become quite knowledgeable on how to how to get through those like the survival guide the survival guide yeah I could probably do do something like that what are some some top tips that come to mind then what what would be considered a rookie mistake a rookie mistake not bringing an extra battery charger pack for your for your phone that would be that would be one not bringing enough clothes because you're you're in England yeah it's uh, (laughs) like Very, very changeable weather. Right, right. What else? Just trying to do too much. Because this, this festival, I'm not joking, it's just, you can look at the schedule and you'd be like, there's five people at the same time that you want to see. And so you get you get a bit kind of fatigued and stressed about missing stuff rather than focusing on what you actually can see. But So a lot of FOMO. Yeah, you try not to have FOMO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, because last, well, we went in 2019. I'd been in 8, 9, 10, 11, and then not for a few years. And then we went in 2019, and this group of us, and the killers were clashing with Chemical Brothers, and quite a few of us. It was quite a, a big clash. But we ended up going doing Chemical Brothers, and it was, I, th- I think it was the right choice. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of the best gigs I've ever I was going to say, is, that, is there one sh- like show where. That was unbelievable. Yeah. That was incredible. And I mean, previous to that, I'm not a huge Beyonce fan, but she was pretty unbelievable. Stevie Wonder was the same, the same day. That was extraordinary. Radiohead, they're one of my favorite bands, so that that worked. And they were actually a surprise. They were on a smaller stage, and they yeah. were they were they were incredible. Well, the last question I'll ask is, uh, and since I've expanded this since it is a podcast of what is your favorite book and or podcast or something along those range, like if, if you're going to recommend for someone. Well, at the moment, I'm uh, podcast wise, I'm listening, listening to a guy called Sean Keaveney, Um and he is a DJ, um, an ex-comedian, north from the northwest of England, 
pretty much the same age as me. And I discovered him a few years ago on a radio station, BBC Six Music. And he's, he's unfortunately, he's just left. He's been there. He was there about 13 years. So since then, he's just started doing a, a podcast, which funnily enough, it's called The Lineup. And it's all about festivals. Mm. But he gets artists to to sort of curate their ideal festival. Oh, very cool. And it can be people dead or alive. So it's not just the people that are performing, it's um, his crew. So he could say, oh, yeah, who's your crew? Uh, uh, David Bowie, you know, <laughs> he's going to come around with me. You know, you, it could it could be anyone. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm listening to podcast-wise. Book-wise, all my reading there. God, America. I'm reading American Dirt at the moment, but I've only just started that, yeah. so I can't really say too much. But Birdsong was one of the best books I've ever read by Sebastian Forks. That was what's that about? It's First World War, mm. so it's it's fiction, but based in you know a, a real event, and it's kind of like a love story interwoven with the the horrors of the First World War. It doesn't sound that you know. <laughs> exciting but it, it was no, I'm sure it yeah be. it was a brilliant book I yeah. read it quite a few few years ago and yeah I think that's still my, my favourite but I do like I like biographies and autobiographies as well Elton John's book was was really good Me I read that recently Keith Richards book Life that was amazing you can imagine the stories that he's got sure yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. that was great that book actually I recommend that one but um yeah, there's a few of them. Great. Well, I want to thank you for your time today. And, no worries. Uh, it, was, it was good. I'm glad we got to do this uh, in person, mind you, and uh, in the same time zone. So normally not, not the case. So thanks for your time today, Sam. No worries. No problem. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and... Well, until next time, be well and have fun.